Blog Talk Radio. This is our common ground. Alternative activists empowerment on radio. Speaking truth to power and ourselves. Who are you? You don't know. Don't tell me Negro. That's nothing. What were you before the white man named you a Negro? And where were you? And what did you have? What was yours? What language did you speak then? It's just about what we didn't do. Amen. Then it speaks to us and the possibility for us as a future person. Because ultimately, our people's future resides on what we do outside of the White House. African descent family, America failed. Put them in the lowest paying jobs. Put them outside the equal protection of the law. Kept them out of their racist bastions of higher education and locked them into positions of hopelessness and helplessness. The government gives them the drugs, builds bigger prisons, passes a three-strike law, and then wants us to sing God Bless America? No, no, no. Not God Bless America. God... Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Our Common Ground, speaking truth to power and ourselves. Our Common Ground, a higher ground for discourse, discussion, solutions, and ideas. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. Talk, talk, that matters. Transforming truth truth to power. One broadcast at a time. And now to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. I don't care about a black face in a high place. I want black power. If all you need is a black face, they'll give you a black face with no power. Bougie Negroes controlling the politics in predominantly black countries. When are we going to learn? When are we going to learn? There's only one good thing about this Trump situation. And the Hillary situation would have been just as bad because it would have put your ass back to sleep. Y'all love going to sleep. Black folks love falling asleep. You don't want to do no work, so you vote for Democrats hoping they're going to fix all your problems because your ass too lazy to fix your own problems. Talking about did you vote. You out there buying Walmart gifts for Christmas. Did you vote. You out there buying pig's feet for Thanksgiving dinner. You think the vote was the most important thing you could have done? Do you not understand money controls politics? Money controls politics. Politics don't control money. Money controls politics. So you don't want to use your money to control your politics. You want to use your money for fancy cars, Gucci bags. You want to use your money for nice houses in the suburbs to get your weed done, get some new tins and air Jordans. That's what you want to use your money for, and you want to go vote for white folks, and you think you've done something. You vote for Hillary. Look at, look at this. You vote for Hillary, and then you run to the supermarket and give your money to Arabs, Anglo-Saxons, Latinos, 
Chinese so you can cook your Christmas dinner to celebrate white supremacy's extermination of the original Afri African people in this country. That's right. You want to celebrate the extermination of the original Africans in America. That's your Thanksgiving. Your Thanksgiving is a feast to honor the extermination of African people. That's what your Thanksgiving is. But because you voted for Hillary, you think you've done something. But you're going to take all your money and go buy some food to celebrate the extermination of the original Africans in America. And then the day after you eat, you're going to run to Walmart, Kitty City, uh, uh, Gimbel's, Macy's, online, Target, and spend all your money on useless gifts. Look how ridiculous that is. You're supposed to be using that money to control, dictate, and influence your political landscape. And the bougie blacks are not going to tell you that you need to organize your money to bring about political change because they don't want you organized. They serve white folk. They don't want you organized. They want you to stay disorganized because a disorganized black folk can't hold nobody accountable. Who can you hold accountable if you disorganize? Who can you hold accountable if you disorganize? Nobody. That's why the church don't want you organized. Black politicians don't want you organized. NAACP don't want you organized. Urban League don't want you organized. The Masons don't want you organized. Nobody wants you organized. Because disorganized black folk can be exploited. What the Marcus Garvey said, the greatest weapon used against the Negro is disorganization. The greatest weapon used against the Negro is disorganization. Stokely Carmichael Kwame Ture said if you organize a little, you get a little done. If you organize some done, but if you don't organize at all, you don't get anything. That's what Stokely Carmichael Kwame Ture said. We got to organize. They keep talking about Trump this and Trump this and Trump this. His whole campaign was about making America white. The nigger is necessary. You're the nigger, baby. It's me. Wash your hands, get out the scenes what you best believe, for the hell to pay. Yeah, you best believe, for the hell to pay, Sam. When you sit there and you write them fucking notes on your pad about who you think I am and why I did it and all of that. You're gonna see the swim, you're gonna learn the truth. No matter what you do, you're gonna learn the truth. Who? Are you? Who are you? And we will make America great again. Wash your hands, get out the scenes, what you best believe, for the hell to pay. Yeah, you best believe, for the hell to pay, Sam. Thank you for joining us tonight. Transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. Stay tuned. And now, Janice Graham. And good evening, and thank you for joining us here on Our Common Ground. This is a sanctuary for black truth, for black folks, for black empowerment. Speaking truth to power and ourselves. I'm Janice Graham, and I'm hosting this very important forum. You know, a lot of people say, well, Janice, you don't do a lot of talking. I bring the best minds, black minds, the black, best black ideas, the best black notions 
to formulate an ideology for empowerment. I create, and it has always been my aspiration to create an archive of history and what we were thinking, what we were doing, and how we were strategizing in these times. Tonight at Our Common Ground, and we are so glad to have you again with us. We hope you are well. This is in our third week of an an elected administration where, I, I can't say the name, for all of you who are new, you know that I refer to him as Donad. D-O-N-A-D, Donad. But tonight we're going to be discussing the political future of black Americans in this era of an imperialist executive and legislative government. question for us is not how we react to the bordering of fascism in our government that has embedded itself, but how we plan to organize our resistance and survival. There are some who say we have been here before. Now, in my opinion, this is a very different and well will be totally destructive to any viable black empowerment strategies. And what we need to do is to be able to defend the destruction or the attempts toward destruction of where we stand as a people because they are bent on a strategy that will destroy the vulnerable, and I want to underscore that, the already vulnerable infrastructure, political, economic, and educational infrastructure that keeps us from drowning that keeps us from our ideals and our objectives for our future and our children. Tonight we talk with our common ground interlocutor, Gal Robert, about preservation and building in this era. You know him. He has been here many times, as a matter of fact. This week is his first anniversary of being an Our Common Ground voice. It is pronounced Robert, like Stephen Colbert, got that? He is a blogger who loves all things politics. He is sheer political independent, unafraid to slay the most sacred cows of ideological orthodoxy, from the left or the right, and one who enjoys a global uh, affair and aspect of pop culture. In all ways, as he has told us before, he is a child of the Haitian Revolution. Pascal Robert, thank you so very much, and welcome back to Our Common Ground. Brother, we missed you. I'm, I'm so excited to, to be able to have this discussion. Thank you very much. I appreciate being on your program, Janice. It's always good to talk to you. Well, we want people to know that uh, you can join this conversation as we go along at 
347-838-9852. And if you are listening and would like to in, uh, enjoy the pleasure of the company of our friends and allies and comrades in our chat room, you can come to blogtalkradio.com backslash OCG, and they are all there. Uh, let me check. Yeah, they're all there, except for uh, 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 Alpho's there, House Music Lover, looking for a man with a opera in his name. Pascal, thank you so very much for, for being here. You know, many people are walking around and saying, we don't know what this will bring. We don't know what this represents. We don't know where and where we enter and how we stand our ground. What say you? I think the most important thing for us to, to ask ourselves in terms of where we enter and how we got here is to assess where we've been politically, economically, uh, as black people in the United States, and what exactly were the fault lines in our politics that brought us to a position where we have Donald Trump as president of the United States. And I think for me, uh, I always believe that history is the best teacher in terms of strategic planning for all people, but particularly black people, so in addressing the black political future, I chose three uh, different individuals from black history who had spoken or written about the black political condition in their time. And, uh, and I think that we should use these three different presentations as a statement as to exactly where we are now because many of the words these three individuals uh, spoke of resonate with us today. And the three, the three speeches or writings that I'm referred to is Bayard Rustin's From Protest to Politics, 1965, The Future of the Civil Rights Movement, Malcolm X's The Ballot or the Bullet, 1964, and a very, very good piece written by Martin Luther King Jr. that's very, very rarely discussed, The Black Power Defined, which was June 11, 1967. The thing that is interesting about all three of these pieces by these three different men is that they all talk about the crisis, inability of black politics in their time at being able to address the actual needs of black people. And the, one of the things that's fascinating is that when you read these pieces, and you can get them all online, you Google all three of them and you'll find them, is that they talk about situations that you can find today. For example, when you go to Bayard Rustin, he says, this, this matter of economic role brings us to the greater problem, the fact that we are moving into an era which the natural functioning of the market does not itself ensure every man with will and ambition a piece of the productive process. In other words, he's talking about, in, and this is in 1965, that the nature of the American economy is changing in a way where not only black people but Americans in general are going to have a difficult time finding a role in this economy. In this piece, he talks about the role of automation, the way in which technology is making jobs obsolete. 
And what is fascinating about the piece is that Bayard Rustin talks about how this is in 1965, this is after the Voting Rights Act, after the Brown v. Board of Education, that the economic condition, more Negroes are unemployed today than in 1954, and the unemployment gap between the race is wider. The medium income of Negroes has dropped from 57% to 54% and of that of whites. A higher percentage of Negro workers is now concentrated in jobs vulnerable to automation than was the case 10 years ago. How is that different than where we are right now in 2016? In the black power defunct. Right. And at the, time, at the time that he wrote that, Pascal, we had some economic entrepreneurial opportunities that no longer exist. And I'll give you an example. One is the uh, a jitney taxi uh, services that were provided in the black community. And uh, we don't have that anymore, and we're never going to have that again because Uber has taken over all of the intercity, inter-transportation uh, modes uh, across the country. That was one part of uh, of a working class, of the working class economy, entrepreneurial Spirit that we had in our in in our community, and we don't have that anymore. The other is uh, the way in which working class blacks were hired uh, for even menial jobs, but steady paying jobs uh, on the railway as porters. Absolutely. So what we're what we're witnessing now is in this in this transformation to uh, a post industrial post-digital economy is that labor overall is becoming obsolete. And what we're seeing with the advent of the rise of Donald Trump is that in his ability to use dog whistles of the falling of white supremacy to the, to the white poor and working class, he has been able to penetrate in their mind the realization that American capitalism is not working for them. So the question to be asked is that if Donald Trump can make it clear to white folk that American capitalism is not working for them, what exactly is the problem in the black political consciousness that we're not realizing that capitalism has never been working for us? So the question, I, the question always revolves around me, and this is something that you see in all three of these presentations, from Bayard Rustin to Malcolm X, to, uh, to Martin Luther King and the Black Power Defined, is that they are all wrestling with a very simple reality. And the simple reality is that why is it that black politics has not been able to meet the economic needs of the black community in this country? And why is it that black politics seems to be something that is always used to the benefit of the political establishment but yet to the detriment of, of, of black people in America. So the, 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 that is the way I want to use as a starting point in this conversation for us to really assess what exactly is, is, is the obstacle for us to be able effectively to wield 42 million black people in this country into an effective way so that we are not stuck in a position that we are, we are still looking at an economic landscape that has not changed since 1964, 65, and 67. Why has that happened? What went wrong? 
And I'm going to harken back to one more voice in the past that, frankly, I think encapsulates the nature of the problem and addresses the issue quite clearly. And I actually posted it on Facebook, and I saw you liked it earlier. This is from E. Franklin Frazier's book, The Black Bourgeoisie, which is a classic text that basically talks about the role of the black elite and the black middle class in American society. This was written in 1957. Since the wealth of the black bourgeoisie is too inconsequential for this class to wield any political power, the role of the Negro politician has been restricted to attempting to satisfy the demands of Negro voters while acting as the servants of the political machines supported by the propertied classes in the white community. What, what is E. Franklin Frazier saying there? He's talking about what we at Black and Gender Report have been talking about for almost decades, the black misleadership class. How do we have a viable black politics when the best and brightest of our community are marshals to accumulate black votes so that they can pre- protect their role as compradors and collaborators and functionaries of the status quo political administrations in order, for what purpose? To ensure that the patronage that comes to them, particularly in the Democratic Party, the patronage that comes to them is secure. Why is it that in, 2000, in the 2016 election, we have John Lewis basically saying, I don't know Bernie Sanders, I've never seen Bernie Sanders, but I know Hillary, and surrendering the vote of 42 million black people to Hillary Clinton and the, the centrist candidate of the Democratic Party without any demand. The simple question I would like to ask your listeners is that what demands did the African-American constituency in this country put on the Democratic Party in this election? Where was the demand for a black agenda? Where was the, where, 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 where was the, the demand for an economic agenda of including uh, black people in this economy? Where was the demand for the end of mass incarceration? There were talk of these things. Where was the demand that you will not get our vote unless you can literally almost sign off on a list of policy uh, activities that are going to empower African Americans? There were no demands. There was an absolute immediate capitulation that assumed that black people would basically give their votes to not only to the Democratic Party, but to a faction of the Democratic Party, the centrist neoliberal. And we need to spend some time digesting this term neoliberalism that is being bandied about by many in academia, intellectuals, what this means and what this particularly means for black people. How is it exactly that, that, John Lewis can feel so comfortable to dispatch the voting power of 42 million black people at the behest of the most centrist wing of the Democratic Party without any accountability to the needs of the black constituency. How is this different than what Bayard, than what E. Franklin Frazier was talking about in 1957, where the Negro politician has been restricted to attempting to satisfy the demands of Negro voters while acting as the servants of political machines supported by the property class in the white community. When we meet the property class, we're talking about the fact that the Democratic Party 
in the last 25 years has functionally become the party of Wall Street. Barack Obama in 2008 received more money from Wall Street, finance capital, big oil, the energy sector, than, than, than his Republican uh, opponents. Not only that, he received more money in 2008 from the oil industry than any president in the prior 20 years. According to WikiLeaks, we recently found out that his cabinet in 2008 was chosen by a Citigroup executive. This is the same bank that, bank that decimated uh, the African-American community by proposing the deregulation that led to the subprime mortgage crisis, which, by the way, occurred. These deregulations happened under the Clintons. So the question we have to ask is that how are we going to have an effective black politics when our leadership, these, these you know, this black misleadership class, these, the, you know, the bourgeois Negroes that E. Franklin Frazier is talking about, are more wedded to protecting their patronage and position within these status quo parties than addressing the actual economic and material needs of the African-American community. And what I say in reading both uh, Bayard Russin, Malcolm X, and, 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 and uh, Martin Luther King in The Black Power Defined is that nothing has changed. We are still economically displaced. We are still having these, this wealth gap, and we are still having our political leaders act as functionaries for politics, policies, and politicians who have a history of disadvantaging our community. And yet we want to ask, how did Donald Trump become president of the United States? If, if white people... If white women are confident enough in the inability of Hillary Clinton to meet their needs to the point where they actually vote for a man who's clearly a reactionary racist and sexist, if the white industrial uh, workers in Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania are so unwilling to lend their support to a Democratic Party because they feel that they have abandoned them, why is it that Don Lewis and the Congressional Black Caucus feel that without question they can dispatch the support of 42 million Negroes to a party that the rest of the country has realized that has abandoned them? Let's make this clear. In the 2016 Democratic primary, we had Bernie Sanders, who was not a perfect candidate, but per Bernie Sanders was an economic populist who was talking about the fact of how late capitalism in the 21st century was not working for the majority of Americans. Were there problems with Bernie Sanders as a candidate? Absolutely. Were there people who felt that Bernie Sanders were not, was, not functioning on was not focusing on racism enough? Absolutely. But how are you going to tell me that our black political establishment is telling us off the bat that Bernie Sanders, who probably, in my opinion, had the most expansive economic campaign in addressing the needs of, of, of poor people, particularly African Americans who are disproportionately poor, because he was talking about a redistribution of wealth. How exactly are we going to take our black political class seriously when their first role is to dismiss them outright and to basically categorically take our votes and place them in the hands of the most reactionary faction of the Democratic Party in the Clintons and, and the Clinton neoliberal centrist machine. Now, back to this term. What does this term mean? Everyone is hearing neoliberalism, neoliberalism, the neoliberal Clintons, the centrist Clintons are trying. Neoliberalism 
to give a basic, simple definition, from my understanding, is a fancy word for privatization. Neoliberalism happens when your government takes government services like the water in Newark and says that we're going to give it to a private company to distribute water in Newark, have them charge you the fees for the water while you still pay taxes and have them to control what happens with the water, which means that the price, there's no price controls because they can charge what they want, which means that the quality control is outside the hands of the government, which means that they can actually do what they can and you are limited because you have, the private companies have no accountability to you because you can't vote for their, for their shareholders. What has happened over the last 40 years is that we are moving to a place in which the public resources of the government are being given over to private corporations through education reform, health care reform, through, through uh, water, through, uh, through all of those things that were public spaces are now being given over to private corporations. One of the consequences of neoliberalism is that it cannibalizes the function of government. What do I mean by cannibalizing? It eats it alive and it turns it into a functioning like a private company, which means that the quality of service fluctuates with the quality of the economy of the private owner of the services. The, the, the cost of the service fluctuates. And if, like happened in California uh, in the early 2000s with the rolling blackouts, if the company goes under and they can't provide those services, you lose those services. So we had whole parts of California that were literally without electricity because they were experimenting with this neoliberalism. Neoliberalism is probably one of the most dangerous manifestations of capitalism in the, in the 21st century because it surrenders all of the function of government to private corporate actors who have no fiduciary duty to the public trust. What does that mean, fiduciary duty? That means that the primary role of the private corporation is to be responsible to the shareholders. They're not responsible to the public. So you as a voter, when the government was controlling your water and the water was basically coming out rusted, you could go to the government and say, listen, if you guys don't fix this water, we will either sue you or we will actually uh, use government regulations to deal with your problems or we will vote you out of office. We can use certain leverage. Uh, we can use our tax bases. We can, do, we can use certain leverage in public spaces to, to, man, to demand that you change the problems that we have. But now in the era of neoliberalism, when you have private actors that are governing over the public resources in the public spaces, there's no accountability, there's no responsibility, hence there's no fiduciary duty. So now we have a situation where you have black people who are still economically marginalized. You have a Democratic Party who has taken on this neoliberal role of government privatization full steam with the rise of the Clinton model. And you have now our black political representatives who are telling us that we need to get behind an economic model in a political representative that disadvantages us the most. While every other segment of Americans, white Democrats are going for Sanders, who is trying to fight this model. White Republicans are going for Donald Trump, who are trying to fight this model. Yet the black community is the only community that is politically wedded 
to a political regime that has an ideology that is decimating the rest of the country. And we want to ask ourselves, how did we get Donald Trump as president? Well, we, we certainly uh, have been enamoring the corporatism under the Obama administration. You know, you reminded me uh, in our discussion uh, last night and a piece that you wrote today, um, I don't know if it's well published, but for all of you who are listening, you should follow uh, Pascal Robert, Robert uh, on Facebook and Twitter, and I will post that in our in our chat room. But you reminded me about the way in which, and and the history informs the way in which our blackness leadership operated even as the young Senator Barack Obama announced his candidacy in 2007 for president and that and during the time and after Hillary Clinton also announced that she was running the black misleadership political misleadership, they were all backers of Hillary trying to ride what they thought was the winning horse until he took Iowa. That's correct. And 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 the and the New York Times at the time wrote a, uh, an article that I pulled up um, entitled yeah, I have it right Obama, here. the end of black end of politics. black politics. Yes, yes, yes. Yes, that's correct. Uh, and it right. was published in on August 6, 2008. That's correct. I want you to listen very carefully, folks. The title of the uh, opinion piece, the commentary in the New York Times on August 6, 2008, was, Is Obama the End of Black Politics? And no one questioned what was being said said there let me, let me, um, this is a very this is a very important i'm glad you brought that up this is in 2008 after barack obama you know this is the time where barack obama has 96% of the black vote he has the largest share of the white youth of any democrat in modern history this is so so you would think that this is probably one of the most effective demonstration of coalition politics, of black politics in modern history. You have the first black president, a historical, supposedly a historical achievement of black political support. The, the Journal of Record, the New York Times, which is the standard bearer of status quo thought, what is the piece that they put forth to celebrate this reality? Is Obama the end of black politics. And what is most important about that piece is that the tone of the piece is celebratory, as if to say, if he is the end of black politics, that's a good thing. 
But but the thing is that we all got mad with with Reverend Jesse Jackson when he made the point that he wouldn't mind personally castrating his party's nominee, meaning the now President Barack Obama. We Black America was so angry um because of this it was a Father's Day speech on Chicago when Reverend Jesse Jackson Sr. made this comment. But but what is more important is that there was a divide, a fissure that happened, whether or not all of the black people uh, who were in the public square having this discourse, there was still a divide. It was the old black guard and the new black political leadership. And part of that political leadership, Pascal, was um, a guy, a pollster, who worked for Obama named Cornell Belcher. You all yes. see him on MSNBC, 38 years old. He was 38 years old. Uh, at the time, he's in his 40s now, but he's the guy that has, I don't know how to describe him other than he has the salt and pepper hair that's sticking out all over the place. Yeah, the eccentric hair. Um, yeah, yeah, very, very, very uh, bright uh, young brother. But one of the things that he said at the time, he said, I don't want in any way to seem critical of the generation of leadership who fought so I could be sitting here. But it's like watching something that you've been working on all your life sort of come together right before your eyes. Uh, It's like you've been building the Great Wall of China and you finally put the last stone in and you can't see it. You just can't see the enormity of it. And what Belcher was saying that when... Barack Obama became president, we didn't need to have black politics anymore because we had a black president and we were in. Well, it's even deeper than that. What, 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 What he was basically saying is that the needs and the demand of black people have no particular place in this post racial America. Because now we've come to a point where we have people like Barack Obama who can show us the way that, you know, basically when we achieve a certain position and status, that this racism thing is not a problem. This poverty thing is not a problem. The deeper part of the argument is that all of this young guard, they interviewed Cory Booker, uh, you know, this gentleman that you talked about as well, all of these politicians, these young politicians, these young politicos, if you will, were arguing that you know we're you know I'm, we're not stuck on the 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 issues of this civil rights generation. We're not stuck on this race stuff as much. You know we're different. We 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 don't have the same baggage. Mind you, I just read to you a piece from Bayard Russell in nineteen sixty five where he's talking about the economic political landscape and we both conceded that it is no different than it is today. One of the most interesting let me tell you, one of the most interesting books that I remember reading in two thousand seven, two thousand eight, during the election uh, cycle, was a book by Ellis Coase 
call the end of anger. This, 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 this. Ellen what, this, Coates is this, a very good friend of this show. But go ahead. Well, okay, no, well, I'm go, well, I'm not gonna. You know, I'm glad he's a friend of the show. But I will maybe if you had read this book, you might, he might be As a friend a of the show. Fact, but when he when he published that book, I think that I was probably the third person who interviewed him about the book. Well, this, this that's is the premise when of black the book. authors didn't. Didn't have MSNBC and all CNN and all them people. They had to come this way. But anyway, that's aside, aside from that. But well, okay. What was your point about the book? Okay, okay. The title of the book is "The End of Anger." The premise of the book is that in the face of the rise of Obama, we have a generation of new elite educated black professionals who are no longer burdened by racial anger anymore, who are now free to achieve without the problems of race, who can now feel comfortable. You know, we have so many graduates from Harvard Business School and so on and so forth. The whole book was this kind of celebratory type of almost kind of uh, emotional flight of fancy where all of these elite educated Negroes are saying, listen, we have arrived. We don't need to talk about this race stuff anymore. Everything is good. And and, and the sheer absolute bankruptcy of this type of thinking when eight years later in 2016 you have Three urban riots that have rebellions that have happened under the Obama administration. You have Baltimore, you have Ferguson, you have North Carolina. You have black people protesting in the street with Black Lives Matter because black people's faces are getting blown off by cops with impunity. You have the highest rate of black child poverty in 40 years. You have the black-white wealth gap has not decreased at all. In some ways, it's gotten worse. Black youth unemployment in some cities at 51%. You have black unemployment still twice that of white. All of these problems have precipitated. Black people are in a rage over the racial injustice. And yet in 2008, Ellis Coase is writing a book talking about Obama will be the mark of the end of anger. How, how tone deaf, how tone deaf. And let me ask you a question. Why are black people so much in a rush to get over their anger as if there's nothing to be angry about? Well, I, why, I think why why is the whole posture? Why is the posture of this this piece is Obama the end of black politics in two thousand eight? Why is the posture just, of Ellis Coase's book that we need to get over? What what exactly do black people need to get over based on the demographic realities that I have just placed in front of you? Well, I I think we have to go back to the whole notion of why we embrace neoliberalism until we understand how it's going to work in the era of Trump. The Republicans have always been proponents of privatization because they owe the people who keep them afloat, who support the party financially, 
and keep them afloat. And they are not ashamed, ensure that they pay the debt. And they are paying the debt through privatization because that's all neoliberalism is. But one of the things that I want to talk to you about is that black people somehow seem to seem, and y'all don't write me and tell me about how I said about all black people. I am saying it seems to fall for the catchword that is used in neoliberalism very frequently is partnership. Public, public-private partnership. Yes. This whole notion of public-private partnership. And, you know, Pascal, I do, I want to talk to you about how that's going to work. Um, and, and black people really need to get over and understand that the people who we are faced with who are going to be confirmed by the U.S. Senate because they will not be able to do anything about it, how these people, especially in our military, homeland security, HUD, oh, we have to, Pascal, we really have to find out what happened to um, to Ben Carson. Did he go to Fidel Castro's funeral or something and got lost? <laughs> no, or? Did, I doubt did that. Did he get I lost trying that. to find the Weaver Building in D.C.? What the hell? But anyway, when you think about education, HUD, Homeland Security, commerce, and um, you just think about those domestic policy cabinet posts being tapped by the greatest of the exploiters. These people are literally predators, privatize everything that we know, whether it's public housing. I mean, and and I'm telling you folks, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, they're going to be sold. And that's going to do nothing but suppress first-time home, home buyers programs and increase, and it's already happening. This month was the highest interest, the highest interest rate and um, a mortgage, the mortgage interest rate, average mortgage interest rate was the highest it has been in the last six years already happening because people know that Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae are going away. They are no longer going to be government entities. Then you think about Homeland Security. and We we, we really don't know who's going to be the Secretary of Homeland, but every one of these cabinet appointments, nominees that – this man has come up with. They're all people who are super predators in neoliberal, if they ever get to neoliberalism, 
but certainly for privatization, health and human services. Can you Evo imagine that, the that second, man? Secretary of Education. That's well, right. This, this, is some, this, is, this is the thing we have to understand. The, the, the Republican Party ideologically basically does not believe in government functionality. What do I mean by that? They do not believe that government has any role in the affairs of, this, of the people except caring for the military and at best uh, poli- a police state kind of functionality. This has been the posture of the Republican Party since the New Deal. What people have to understand is that the function of the Republican Party since the New Deal has been to completely roll back all of the government uh, programs that lifted Americans, particularly white Americans, out of poverty during the New Deal and go back to the Gilded Age where you had, you know, basically, you know, the lowest rates of taxes possible and you had no Medicare, no Medicaid, no Social Security, uh, uh, no, no uh, social welfare state, no, uh, no government housing, n- no safety net to care for uh, people who are old, who are sick, and to basically go back to the time where you know if you if you couldn't if you couldn't feed yourself, too bad. If you got sick and you were over sixty-five and you didn't have insurance, too bad. You just died. It's this kind of Ayn Rand, you know, Lord of the Flies yes. kind of society mm-hmm. to roll and, back and, and, every every feature of the New Deal and to roll in every feature of the Reagan agenda. And the Reagan agenda was to destroy public education. To destroy Ronald Reagan's Reagan's famous mantra is that government is not the answer to the problem. Government is the problem. You know, this is the man who's president of the United States who's telling you that government is the problem. And let's understand something. The New Deal programs that these Republicans are trying to, to basically bankrupt and, 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 and roll back, lifted a whole few generations of Americans, mostly whites, out of poverty through, you know, work, through, through you know, the, the, the WPA, through all of these jobs programs, through the GI Bill. You know, literally the New Deal was the mechanism that lifted the majority of America. It left about 60% of black people behind, sadly, because they were more interested in wedding black people to southern agricultural economy as as sharecroppers. But the reality of the fact is that America did not become a humane civilization as a nation until the New Deal. You know, it, you know, it, 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 it was it was basically a dog eat dog type of country before that. So the Republicans who have traditionally been the party of finance capital have always wanted to ideologically roll back those programs. So you would ask, well, if the Republicans have always been like that, Pascal, then why do you have a problem with the Democrats? And this is the thing that is very hard for many black people to understand, is that the Democratic Party, your daddy and your grandma's Democratic Party that signed uh, the Voting Rights Act, that, that put in Medicare, that, that started the Great Society to help the poor, that, that signed the Civil Rights Act of 1964, that Lyndon Johnson 
Democratic Party, that party has been gone for a long time. And why did that party go away? That party went away because in the middle of the 80s, in 1984 and 1988, a man named Bill Clinton, and a man named Al Gore created something called the DLC, the Democratic Leadership Council. And why did Bill Clinton and why did Al Gore create the DLC? Bill Clinton and Al Gore created the DLC because in 1984 and 88 Democratic primaries, a black man named Jesse Jackson was running for president, and he happened to do pretty well in certain states. He won the South Carolina primary, he won the Minnesota primary, and he beat Al Gore in the South Carolina primary. And what, don't forget, Bill Clinton and Al Gore were Southern Democratic governors from the South, the old South, the Dixiecrat states. They realized that in the face of Ronald Reagan being president, who was already creating a, a political environment that was hostile to black interests, yet popular with the white majority, what they surmised, this is Bill Clinton and Al Gore, if the Democratic Party allows Jesse Jackson to be successful and marry the Democratic Party to an image of being concerned with the issues of black people and poor people, that they would never be able to defeat the Reagan machine. So what they decided to yeah. do was to create the DLC, the Democratic Leadership Conference, and say, listen, we are going to appeal to Wall Street, major corporations, finance capital, private industry, and tell them, listen, you bankroll us. We're going to get rid of all this Negro agenda and poor people stuff, and we will be better managers and stewards of your agenda than the Republicans ever were because we got to be able to win by any means necessary. So because black folk were so absolutely politically desperate to get away from the, the, the harsh reality and the anti-black sentiments of the Reagan administration. When Bill Clinton comes into power, it comes to rise in 92, when he only wins because it's a three-way election with the guy from Texas who ran against, uh, against uh, Bush as well. I forget the guy, the computer guy. You know, Bill Clinton runs, and black people fail to realize this, he runs on a very anti-black platform. Don't forget, when he goes to Stone Mountain, Georgia, after he wins the New Hampshire primary in front of a prison with black prison guards, Stone Mountain, Stone Mountain is a memorial basically to the Klan in Georgia. Bill Clinton is running on a campaign saying, listen, you know, we can't be, we, you know, he's sister soldier moment. We can't be considering all these, you know, these issues about black folk and poor folk. Why is he doing that? He's doing that because he is basically prepared to take the Democratic Party in a direction when it's no longer the party of Lyndon Johnson, the Great Society, and the Civil Rights Act. He's right to take the Democratic Party in the same place the Republican Party has been in being the party well, of Wall Street. But in addition, in addition to having 40 years of economic decline for working people and working poor in this country, nonprofits, foundations, advocacy organizations, and labor unions, um, uh, Clinton's same religion of low expectations and narrow horizons and the Democratic Party establishment did not challenge it. 
progressive organizations simply ask people only to do very small things, sign a petition, uh, donate a dollar, uh, consent to union representation without a movement to fight for real change on the job. And in an election where most Americans were yearning for radical change, Hillary Clinton and the Democratic Party did nothing but mock uh, Bernie Sanders' call for political revolution. So the future belongs to a movement that demands something bigger. Donald Trump promised huge and terrifying programs such as forcibly departing more than 10 million people, but he won partly because of huge and progressive and radical promises like trade reform and rebuilding America's means of making a living. And people bought it, uh, Pascal. They bought it. And tonight at Our Common Ground, I'm asking everybody to take a deep breath and start to organize once again around a new radical vision for a society and economy that works for everyone and a vision that especially empowers the political, a new political infrastructure for black people. And I am saying that we have to welcome ourselves to a new resistance. I am doing something every day on social media that I have never done in the many years that I have participated and been a part of social media, I am talking to Donald Trump. I am in his ass, up his ass, every day about something. And what we've got to do, Pascal, and we're going to talk about it when we take this after we take this break, we've got to talk about what it is we have to do and what accountability I mean, we got to ask some people to leave. John, got to purge the we got to purge the ranks. Got to purge abs- the ranks. Absolutely. Some folks got to go. Even my friend and comrade John Conyers, it's time for him to go. Barbara Lee better step up and step out of the Democratic frame, Party framework, or she got to go. Maxine Waters, step up, step out of the framework. We got to take a break. You're listening to Our Common Ground, our guest tonight, in conversation with Pascal Robert, a black political future. Which way do we go? Our number is 347-838-9852 if you'd like to join us in this conversation. And we're going to take this break to take a breath so that we can see our way through. Coming back in, uh, our Common Ground special feature. I do want to uh, ask you to keep the people, the resistors at Standing Rock, in your prayers and in your thoughts and to stay on it and extend um, our sincere sympathies to the families who have lost Um, loved ones at Oakland, California, warehouse fire, 
and those in my own community at Cambridge, Massachusetts, a 10-alarm residential neighborhood went up in fire and fire and smoke this evening, and 38 homes have been lost in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and keep all of those people in your thoughts. This is our common ground. And save us from the madness. And save us from the madness. And save us from the madness. This is our common ground. Thank you for joining us tonight. Transforming truth to power. One broadcast at a time. Stay tuned. The FBI Declare Show, home of real raw right now talk media, and indeed, I declare it, no matter what, know your value, no matter what, know you matter. Who are we, the American people, to want, I don't know, some clean air and some clean water? God forbid. Oh, let's see, anti-education, Pell Grant, screw it. If you can't afford to get in, you ain't getting in. That's the uh, Repub motto. And, of course, the anti-woman. We are. Small government, small government, small government, vote for me. Small government, small government, small government, vote for me. I don't want the government involved in anything unless you have a uterus. If you have a uterus, Ronnie, we are, look, we can't get far up enough in the I Declare Show. Real Raw Right Now Talk Media, I declare it. The I Declare Show. Tuesdays, 9 p.m., Blog Talk Radio. I declare it. We interrupt this broadcast to bring you this important bulletin from the United Press. We interrupt this broadcast to bring you this important bulletin from the United Press. We interrupt this broadcast to bring you this important bulletin from the United Press. We want to interrupt your simple life to tell you that mainstream media is not telling you the truth. Subscribe to the Black Agenda Report. Get the truth, the insight, and the analysis. The Black Agenda Report. You've been warned and fortified. The Black Agenda Report. Ask you this question. This is something that is really keeping me up at night right now. Okay. We have a President Trump, okay, or a President elect Trump. We'll soon have a President mm-hmm. Trump. What happens if, as I believe is quite likely, that Trump is impeached? Because what's going to happen is that if we believe, and as I do, that much of the establishment doesn't want Trump in the White House and fears what might happen with Trump in the White House, I don't think they have any reservations or fears whatsoever about President Pence. I think President Pence is a Christian fascist. 
his views from everything from uh, homosexual conversion therapy to abortion issues and social issues, but also his economic austerity policies. This guy doesn't give a crap about white workers. He's perfectly happy following the neoliberal consensus. That's what he's done his entire career. I think it's a very real possibility that they might just get rid of Trump anyway and end up with a President mm-hmm. Pence. And so I want to ask you, A, what do you – well, do you believe that that scenario is a potential reality and that we need to be considering it and preparing for it? And B, what do you think a President Pence administration would look like? Forget Trump. What would Pence and all of these other hangers-on that would be in that administration, what would that look like in your mind? Well, let me just say first that I think that all things are possible, multiple potentialities in this situation, Um, impeachment, assassination, uh, ungovernability uh, of the country, uh, martial law, all things are possible because we are in one of those unique moments that only has as an analog uh, the 1860 election and its aftermath. Um, I I cannot, I mean, you know, a Trump uh, presidency uh, would be like a Johnson presidency, an Andrew Johnson presidency after the assassination of Lincoln. Uh, It would be a retrenchment of the old regime and of the old order. Uh, and a and it would be uh, would would govern in the name of stability and bipartisan cooperation, which would mean a renewed attack upon working people, precarity and poverty and war abroad. I think the key thing that we have to understand is that uh, much of of the subtext of the 2016 campaign was the U.S. empire and the military defense of that empire. Uh, and this meant to teach Our Common Ground, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. Don't you know that you are free? Well, at least in your mind, if you want to be. And now, back to Janice. Thank you once again for being with us. That was uh, our feature at the top of the hour in this uh, broadcast tonight was uh, Dr. Anthony Montero and Eric Dracert of Counterpunch Radio. If you'd like to hear more of that interview, we are going to interrupt our – we're going to close our program tonight uh, for more of that very critical Interview. Our guest tonight is Pascal Robert. He is a blogger, and you can catch him on his blog, The Merchant. Follow him on Facebook and follow him. I guess you like him on Facebook. You read him on Facebook. You just be his friend on Facebook. And um, follow him on Twitter at Rob. 
I'll post it in the in the chat room. I have to read it from someplace else. Um, <laughs> it's a lot of stuff. Thank you for being with us tonight. Our number is three four seven eight three eight nine eight five two, and we do have a crisis, not in black politics, but in the mechanism and infrastructure in which we do our politics. It is very troubling, Pascal, uh, about what we are facing. You know, there are black people running around saying, well, you know, all we got to do is just don't pay any attention to to, uh, to the man that was elected. All we got to do is keep hollering about, I voted for Hillary, and all we got to do is keep yelling at people who didn't vote for Hillary. Um, and all we got to do is, you know, there is a... Um, organization that, um, a group that was supporters of Hillary called the the Pantsuit Society. Pantsuit Nation. Pantsuit Nation. Thank you. Yes. And they're running around now talking about how they're going to, um, what are they going to do, Pascal? They're going to try to support the, the Jill Stein's real recount. Well, well, I heard the yeah. first one to do the recount, and, and, and they're going to fight Trump at every, uh, I mean, these, these are all, this is all. But that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do that personally because I hate this man. I've been waiting for the opportunity to talk nasty to him. Um. And before he became the president-elect, whatever he did wasn't my business, so I stayed out of it. Now I'm in it. Okay, because well, that is a thing that's going to help me keep my balance over the next two well, I, years. I, I, but let me I mean, ask you about black people supporting the idea that we disrupt, we resist, and we encourage our elected officials, elected officials that listen to us, I don't know who those are, that that they filibuster, 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 obstruct for two years until somebody, and I don't know who the somebody is, can get their stuff together. What are your thoughts about that? I, I, I think that there needs to be some very critical and crucial assessment done about Oh, that sounds very are... intellectual and academic and stuff. You know, I just uh, posted... Um, the January reading for Our Common Ground in the chat room, which is <coughs> Harold Cruz's, because I think we need to revisit the crisis of the Negro, the Negro intellectual, intellectual by Harold Cruz. Great right. Book. Be- because we got a whole bunch of renegade Negroes running around trying to figure out whether they pull their pants up after their uh, colonoscopy. I I, I mean, I'm just, I have kind of like, I'm on the verge of saying. All right, listen, let's let's look at it this way. Yeah. Look at it this way. If you want to use the military analogy, let's say, let's, let's use the military analogy that we're going to war. All right, we're going to war against the Trump administration. All right, well, let's let's use if you want to use that analogy. When you go, oh, to you war, mean first, Cornell Belcher? Well, listen, I, 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 follow my logic here. 
if your assumption okay. is, and I, I'm, I'm following you, your, if, if you want to assume that Trump is the ultimate political enemy and that there is no reason for us to support him, we have to go to war here, let's follow that logic. We're going to go to war with Trump. When you go to war, the first thing you have to do is assess the strength of the troops that are in your ranks and separate the wheat from the chaff. What do we have that we're working with right now in the political constituency that is black America? We have a political leadership that betrayed the consciousness of black people and wed us to a losing faction of the Democratic Party that have been beholden to a politics that have done nothing for black people since the civil rights movement. We are in a position economically as a community where we are as bad, if not worse off, at least on a material level, than we've been in 45 years, in some, in some number, according to some numbers. So how are you going to tell me that you want to create a, 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 a cadre of people prepared to fight Trump when the people who are on your front lines have been stabbing you in the back politically for 45 years. So I would argue the first thing needs to be done is that we have to have a purge. We have to have a purge of the black leadership class. We have to have a purge of their functionaries in the media. We have to have a purge of these organizations and these black church members and these petite bourgeois membership organizations that get black people rallied up to fight to vote for Democrats, but make no demands every four years. And what we need to do is that we need to go, we need to use, and I know you like when I use this analogy, we need to use the Ella Baker model. In other words, why can't we just say we're going to rent out the local neighborhood gym and we're going to invite all of, you know, the members of the community that we can, and we're going to sit down and we're going to have a political discussion and we're going to give them a political education. We're going to ask them, how come the street lights in this neighborhood are not on at the 9 p.m.? Why is it that the public schools have all the kids in classrooms where we got lead paint chips coming down and kids got lead paint in the classrooms? Why Very is it simple. exactly? Yeah. Why a, a is it exactly? Agenda. A, 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 an agenda that lives and sleeps and teaches our children. A very if, you don't basic... know the, if you don't know the name of your mayor and every member of the city council or the town council or the whatever you call it, city commission, if you don't know that, then you're not even in the game of, of survival. Am I right, Pascal? I, I, I agree with you. Why can't we have a basic level of political education where we are telling black folk at the grassroots, listen, we have had councilmen, aldermen, city councilmen, congressional black member XYZ for 25 years. You know what I'm saying? Crime is not being addressed here. The resources to our community are horrible. Black kids still don't have jobs. Why can't we have leadership that's accountable to us in this community? And why is it the only time we see city councilmen, aldermen, or Mayor XYZ is when he's coming here for votes. We have to give the political education to our communities but we know how to make our representatives accountable and we cannot have them deluded with this notion that, well, you know, we can't call out a black person because that's one of us. That's got to stop. All of our skin folk are not well, our skin folk. Well, we have to do that, but before we even begin to do that, we have to set the model. As you know, I spent all of the last two months doing political education, civic education, and organizing where I live. 
And one of the things that I think that keeps people back is even challenging their mayor or their board of education at home. Their mayor and their board of education and the cabinet level of the of the Obama administration, they are parroting what they hear from the NAACP, the NAACP Legal Defund, the Urban League, uh, and all of those people who are on the national platform. We've got to get one of them suckers. Well, that's that. This, and, this is part of the problem. We have to understand when we say the black misleadership class, we're not just talking about elected elected officials. The black misleadership exactly. class is a, is an echo chamber that evolves all of these. Basically, we're talking about the way in which college educated professional black people function in the black community to support the Democratic Party and create an echo chamber that resonates amongst poor and working class black folk who are the majority of the black community yep. to force them to have allegiance to politics that only protects these Negroes from getting the biscuits and fat back that they want every year from the Democrats. That's basically what we're talking about. Well, we want to get down. Here is the model, folks, if, in case you got lost or you don't understand that. This year, you need to be calling the NAACP, the Urban League, whoever, has the Martin Luther King dinner and they charge you $65, $75, $125 for a seat, and they invite all the corporations that's going to eat up your children, take away your public education because it's putting it all in charter schools, if you will notice that most of those events are sponsored by corporations that are predators of black people, Walmart, the um, Apple, <laughs> Apple, they're not giving out any computers. They're just giving out uh, $5,000 to buy a table at the Martin Luther King dinner. You need to call whoever sponsors those events and say, we're not coming. Because Martin Luther King wouldn't have, Reverend Martin Luther King wouldn't have none of this crap. None of it. And you need to say that to the organizers. Organize something else. Do something that's meaningful, that will bolster our empowerment and correct the issues in our problems. Have a dinner with a bust of Martin Luther King sitting at the top with the goddamn police, excuse me, with the police department union, fraternity of police officers, and the management of the city and whoever funds your police department with the police department management saying, we're not going to have it here. I think we need to go even farther than that. I think that what we need to do is that there needs to be a line has to be drawn. We, we cannot expect working class black folks and poor black folk who are on the margins to even expect the Urban League, the NAACP, uh, uh, you know, and all of these organizations to even be interested in their position anymore because they have demonstrated 
historically that they are more interested in protecting their relationship with the political establishment in order to secure the patronage for delivering black votes. And the only way that you bankrupt those organizations is that you don't give your black vote over to the causes or politicians that they are trying to sequester your vote to support. That needs to stop. In other words, there's got to be a law, a lot, and a lot of black people don't like when you talk about this. There's got to be a line drawn That's in right. the black community. But, you know, we, we also have to understand how we behave. You know, this is our common ground, and we say speaking truth to power and ourselves. And we stood while Hillary Clinton, and gave her all our votes, we stood while, while on the same platform in front of the same microphone, she might as well have had two mouths, two lips, four lips on her face, because on one hand she would be talking about how, how crazy it is that we accept extrajudicial killings and supporting the fraternity of police, whatever the fraternity of police officers uh, are. Uh, on the other hand, and none of us got whiplash trying to keep up with the contradictions. How about she's talking about the, the dangers and perils of she's talking about the dangers and perils of mass incarceration caused by a bill her husband signed, and until she was called out, she was taking money from private prisoners, private prison contracting companies that were her bundlers. These, these, these private, this woman had private prison contracting companies as her bundlers until it was exposed. So, listen, this, this, this is the bottom line. All right, we understand how we got this Trump situation. The question has to become this. Now, this is, a, this, this is why I find the, the, the conflict, there's two factions that I see in the black community. There's a faction that is saying we go to war with Trump. On, on all and every grounds, scorched earth no matter what. And there's a faction that says that, listen, Trump is just as much as the enemy as the Democrats, but let's see what we can get from him and work with him from what we can get and fight him on what we don't like. I have not uh, developed a yay or nay on either strategy. I am not, I am not completely pro or against either one. I think there are arguments for both, but my question is that we can't have individuals speaking for the black community making these decisions. We need to have the black community decide, do they want to work with a Trump administration on the issues that are beneficial to the black community. Now, this is controversial because there are some people who respond that you should never concede to fascism and Trump is a fascist. He's running a white nationalist, a white nationalist campaign, and you know, you know, we, we can't show ourselves being in a line with any other. I understand that argument. And there's another faction that says, listen, we have to be practical about this. None of these politicians, none of these presidents, including Obama, have ever given a damn about us. We've worked with them before. Trump is a reactionary, he's a racist, he's you know, all of that. He's president of the United States. You know, who says we haven't had reactionary racists before? Let's get what we can get and protect our interests. Now, my question is, why exactly are we having black people who are spokesmen 
making the decision, when we need to actually take this to the community and have the community decide on their own what they're going to do. Listen, the 800-pound gorilla here that no one seems to talk about is that Donald Trump got a higher percentage of black male voters than probably any Republican in modern history. He got 13% of the black male vote. He got damn near 10% of the black vote. He did as well as George W. Bush. He did better with black people than Mitt Romney did in 2012. There are black people who support Donald Trump, whether we want to like it or not. Well, let's be very candid. We worship money. Go ahead. I don't think I, I don't think it can be every that, that hear, simplistic. Every time I hear those statistics, my brain kind of goes into a gurgle. Well, I'm listen, sorry. Let's, let's, let me let's let's be very candid. And even though I don't necessarily agree with this argument, this is a reality. There are black people who are working class black people who live in places like Texas, like like California, like Florida who are basically fear that they are being denied economic opportunities because of the president's presence of illegal or what I call undocumented workers, but what maybe you call illegal aliens. I am not one who advocates for this hostile tone, get them out, we've got to protect black workers, because I believe there are ways that can be done to remedy this that protect the sanctity of black labor and doesn't have to make the immigrant the enemy, but I cannot deny the reality of the sentiment that there is a cadre of black people who have real-world issues who basically find sympathy with Donald Trump's willingness to address something that they find is an economic threat to their reality. So I cannot say that all of those black people who were voting for Trump was just because they liked Trump's billion dollars and flashy money. Some of them might have been people who said, listen, when I go to a construction job and I see Mexicans who are running, I'm worried about my job. Now, I don't believe that you should side with reactionary racists to protect your interests anytime, because the same way they'll turn on that Mexican, they'll turn on you. But at the same time, as someone, I don't believe my job is to speak for black people. My job is to speak to black people to give them the power to make decisions for themselves. So that being said, that is the sentiment that's a reality. How do you and I, as people who are trying to give political education to black people, reconcile that reality in a way that addresses the economic concerns of that community that's still in the best traditions of the black community that does not force us to be in a situation where we have to surrender to the most reactionary aspects of this administration that is trying to balkanize, which is a fancy word for divide, every segment of American society anyway. We have to ask these questions. Well, I, I, I think that on the, on the question of immigration, that we as a community have to have a reasonable and logical ideology about immigration. We have an agency. Uh, as citizens, they don't think we do, but we do. So if we're going to grapple with the issue of immigration and what our economic interests are, then we've got to formulate a sense of who we want to be as citizens on the question of immigration. And I think we've got to approach I mean, we've got to be more sane than the insane people um who have come into play um and 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 I don't want to run out of time before I I want to uh, talk to you about 
the the donad strategy that's going on here. But the other thing is that when you cannot divorce education from economics in this country. And until <clears throat> until we are able to demand and challenge the quality of the education that our children are receiving, we are going to be in total, total mode of destruction. But the first thing that has to happen is you've got to look at the reality of who this woman is who's coming in as Secretary of Education and whether or not we're going to be able to hold um, hold, hold the line with her because her job is going to be to totally dismantle what we know as public education and to privatize and to bring a whole new definition and framework for the charter school movement because it won't just well, this, be charter schools. Well, this is this this again is another issue. You know and I know. Listen, there are a lot of black people who love the concept of charter schools. There are a lot of black people who love school choice. I think charter schools is nothing but an agenda to wrap, to increase the pace of the prison school to prison pipeline, to defund public education, to send our kids to schools that will not serve them in the end. There's been no demonstrable evidence that charter schools educate schools better than public schools. They don't have to take kids with learning disabilities. They don't have to kid, take kids from troubled homes. There are so many studies that demonstrate that the charter school movement and the school choice movement is nothing but trying to put a Band-Aid on a bullet wound. But we also but it's know more than that. that there are men. It's also, it's also, if you look at the majority of the charter schools that are run in this country, they're run by just simply three or four different um, corporations all over this country. Yeah. There's and big the money model in charter school, hedge funds, is, hedge funds. The model is the same model in terms of discipline and objectives as a prison system. Yeah, that's why I said I believe there's nothing but fast-tracking kids in the school to prison pipeline. They treat these kids like criminals. Yes, that's the approach. And that's where this new uh, nominated... Uh, Secretary of Education, Ms. Betsy, Ms. Betsy, who the only thing she knows about education is that she went to school. That's all she knows about education. She has a political agenda. The political agenda is is based in white nationalism, white supremacy, white privilege, and the idea that – you all ready for this? That poor children don't deserve an education. Okay, so we let's move on to the to the next uh, seat, uh, nuclear seat, and that is housing. You ready for that? Um, ben, ben, Uncle Ben Carson. Uh, and the only thing, and Ben Carson admitted it, the only thing he knows about housing is that 
he lived in public housing, or he was well, you know, you know what else public said? housing You know what he also said? He said he considered what? public housing to be a communist plan, a communist conspiracy. Yes, and that fair housing is a communist plot and social engineering. There goes your... Yeah. There goes your, with with uh, Dr. Ben Carson as the Secretary of HUD, there goes your whole notion of Title VI, which protects you from discrimination in housing uh, under the Civil Rights Act. Title VI, uh, Section 504 of the Civil Rights Act, uh, protections for disabled persons, and uh, Title VI also protects elderly people, uh, also protects people of, against religious discrimination in housing. I mean, uh, and this guy thinks that all of that is sexual. Uh, is sexual. It ain't sexual healing, that's for sure. Uh, all of that is um, a form of social engineering which he opposes. But here's the deal with the Fannie Mae and the Freddie Mac, as I said earlier. If Fannie Mae goes, all of the programs across the country which are funded under Fannie Mae and the Fair Housing Administration for new home buyers, you know those programs where, Pascal, where where if you finish the program, then the program... Uh, gives you a, uh, uh, the ability to get a lower mortgage rate, interest rate, and also gives you the ability uh assist you in your down payment. First-time home yes. buyer's program. Right. That all goes away. In addition to, <clears throat> there is already a new program at HUD which allows uh, developers – uh, to purchase using tax credits to purchase existing housing, um, public housing developments who feel that financially they cannot survive. All they have to do is show. And I am suspecting, uh, I don't know how you feel about this, uh, and, you know, tune in. Um, Pascal, when you can, I'm suspecting that Carson is not going to take this position. I really think that what they have done is put him in a position where he's going to bow out and this guy in Westchester County who led the protest and challenge against the government to pro, to to block public and federally assisted housing in Westchester County, I think he will end up ultimately being the secretary of HUD. All of this stuff is this guy is playing this guy is playing the biggest game that we've ever seen uh with these very important um uh cabinet positions. Forty eight percent John Bolton who has never been able to be confirmed by the Senate or the House about anything, is in the background. And I'm not sure he's lurking in the background. I mean, he's already given Nikki Haley the U.N. I thought he was going to give that to John Bolton. 
and John Bolton is still lurking in the background. Rudy Giuliani is still lurking in the background. On Friday, Thursday, Chris Christie raises his fat head again. Um, so I, I think there's a game that's being played here. And it's being played by a pathological narcissist. And I'm not sure how it's going to ro- how it's going to roll out. But for me, it's, it's it's pretty clear that Trump is a reactionary right winger with obviously some white nationalist sympathies, and he's governing in that fashion. Jeff Sessions from Alabama, a man who pro- who literally tried to incarcerate uh, a civil rights you know vanguard who marched on the on the Edmund Pettus Bridge for trumped-up charge of, of voter fraud, a man who said that the only bad thing okay. he thought about here's the people... Here's my guess on Sessions. I don't think Sessions is going to be able to be confirmed. And that's where Giuliani... Well, how, is that, how is that possible? How is it possible when the Republicans have the majority in the Senate? Who's going to block him? Because I think that there are Republicans who will not confirm him. In the in the age of the Tea Party, who's going to turn down? Who's going to turn down Jeff Sessions in the age of the Tea Party in the Senate? Well, I didn't make the list coming into the show, Pascal, but I think that there are enough Republicans who will join with people uh, across the aisle to stop Sessions. Really? I'm telling you, this is a this, this is not the day that's going on. This this is not the age of the Rockefeller Republican here, uh, Janice. We're talking about. Well, you got you got guys like Tom Cotton. You think Tom Cotton is gonna is gonna go across the aisle to stop Jeff Sessions? He's another reactionary. Too. No, I don't. No, I don't. But I think that there's. I I think it's almost like. Have you ever? I I very rarely without my Rubik's cube. And I don't know I you're a Rubik's that, cube fan. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, one of one of my BFFs <laughs> is a is an 11 year old boy who lives in my neighborhood, who also is without it. And Alpha is saying in the chat room, "Dream on," but I am telling you, I think that he's churning this thing every day, and we're gonna see some some fallout. But okay, I'll give it to you. Sessions will be the United States Attorney General. But I am telling you, (laughs) funny thing that happened at the Department of Justice. The Landon team, who works with the transition team, they all went on leave until the end of the year. Shit like that is happening in your government. (laughs) I mean, I just found that out this morning. And it's happening in in, in, in HHS. The transition team hasn't even given them a clue about when they're going to meet. For those of you who are listening, the landing team is a team that is assembled in each one of the cabinet uh, agencies uh, to assist the, the the transition team in coming in. So <clears throat> the 
these are key people who have prepared key documents and orientations and briefings and um, responsible for responding to the needs of the transition team. Every agency, cabinet-level agency, has a landing team. They are generally made up of senior management people and technocrats uh, to do the grunt work. And at HHS, where they're talking about, Pascal, they're talking about the, 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 the February 1st having a transformation conference on Social Security. Yeah, they have already pretty much decided that they're going to eliminate Medicare expansion. We're talking about private. We're talking about privatization, privatizing Medicare. It's privatization, table, right? exa- ex- exactly. And what they're not going to tell you is that they're not going to change the rules. It takes forever and uh, one hundred and fifty-five days to change the rules. What they're going to do is just give it to a corporation to administer it and call it a transformation. So we've we've got a lot of um of work to do. And as I mentioned um coming into the program tonight, we're going to be getting out of here at 10 minutes of uh to share with you this interview, the Counterpunch Radio interview. Um, talking about these same issues. Next week, here at Our Common Ground, Dr. Tommy J. Curry will be joining me, and we'll be talking uh, still so much about this. Pascal, I can't seem to become precise in my thinking about what this change, what this administration is going to well, well, when I look if, at the I, mean-spirited, racist, white nationalist, uh, white supremacy ideologues. Well, I mean, I, I think that for me, I don't, I realize the particular challenge that Trump presents, but frankly, Trump to me represents an honest, open enemy. And to me, there's a certain sanctity in having an honest, open enemy as opposed to someone who is going to go on talk shows singing with Mary J. Blige who knows that she's getting money from private prison corporations. Because, frankly, the deception yeah, but, is, all, but it's is more dangerous. But it's to hear people say that it's honest and open. Donald Trump lies every time he opens his mouth. No, how what can, I mean it's open, you... what I'm saying is that the sheer, the sheer uh, political depravity is clear. There is no veneer of 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 normalcy with Trump. There's no veneer of accepting what he represents. You know, it's clear. Listen, the guy has Steve Bannon uh, working in his cabinet. There's a guy who's you know basically flirting with you know white reactionary nationalism. His you have Jeff Sessions. You know, he's Trent yeah. Kent I from I, the I get D- that, but the thing is what I'm saying is that I do not think it is wise for anyone who is opponent of what Trump presents to emotionalize and over and over uh uh value 
the symbolic uh, horror of what he represents because I think that that blinds you from making strategic moves in how to deal with him. And one of the problems I have with how these traditional how democratic... How to deal with li- him? Pascal, what are you talking about, how to deal with him? How do you deal with a, with a, a man who is clearly unstable? I mean, uh, there's no question he's, uh, but this is the problem. This is the bottom line. He's president of the United States. Well, how you deal with him is that you we do what we're doing now. Who is he going to have in key positions? What are the policy agendas of those people in key positions? How do we muster up the political opposition to those agendas? How do we give people in our community the political education to let them know why it's bad that Betsy Davos is head of Secretary of Education when you have people in the community talking to them like Roland Martin who are saying, Charter schools are the future for black people. We have to. This is the thing, Jen. One of the mistakes that often people like you and I who well, have our why don't we just power, get rid of Roland well, Martin? Hold, hold on a second. Hold on a second. Let me make my point. We always we. One of the mistakes that people like myself and yourself and many, uh, you know, many, many folks who are more liberal on the liberal tip than the left tip than you and I mistake is that we assume that all pe- black folk have our politics. That's not the case. There are plenty yeah, of black right. people who who are buying into this right wing rhetoric. There are plenty of listen. There's a great book that came out a couple of years ago called The Silent Majority. It's written by a young African American political scientist. The whole premise of the book is talking about how during the beginnings of mass incarceration, you had whole segments of the black middle class who were down with mass incarceration because they wanted to clean up their neighborhood and get tough on crime. Let us not act like these, you know, if we're going to be speaking, and this is why for me, I always say I do not speak for the black community, I speak to the black community. If we're speaking to the black community, we have to be honest with the fact that there are factions of our community who don't see a problem with charter schools, who don't see a problem with, with, with Donald Trump's immigration program, who don't see a problem with, hey, Trump wants to improve the hood. And what we have to do is that we have to educate these people that, listen, when Trump is telling you that he wants to do these things, he's not looking out for you, he's trying to act as if he has the, the, the scintilla of your support to further his reactionary agenda that's going to ground you to powder anyway when he tries to privatize your public housing when 40, 48% of public housing is made up of black folk and he's going to have you out in the streets. So we have to find well, a way I to t- politically... Ed- go ahead. I, I, go ahead. I, I can't see we you. Gotta so, find a, you know, we we, we got to find a way to... We've got three more minutes before I have to get out of here. We, got, we have to find a way to give our community a political education where they can make the choices for themselves and understand why these policies are detrimental to them. And we cannot take for granted and assume that they all see, oh, well, Trump is evil. I mean, listen, yes, Trump is a disaster. Trump is a monster. But we have to explain to people in our community what is bad about him and stop taking the posture of these Hillary-supporting liberals. Like, oh, Trump is a fascist. You're talking to communities who don't even understand what the word fascism means. To them, hey, Trump is a the millionaire, he like Don, Don King likes him. Why did that be for Trump? We have to understand well, that. And 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 you know, but but the thing is that we also have to weigh who these people are. And I'm saying to people um, that um, you got to deal with that first, because who you listen to is as important as what you do. Um, Pascal, I really, really 
always enjoy having you uh, with us. And for those of you who do not know, um, you can join him on Pascal.Robert on Facebook. At Pip. Robert06 on Twitter. He is also... Um, Black Agenda Report? I'm sorry. At Black, Black Agenda, Agenda Report. Report. And I just posted it all in our chat room. That's why you all should join us in our chat room. Um, but this is what I'm going to do, Pascal, and you know that I'll be checking with you all the time. I am going to enjoy myself until January 15th, talking shit to Donald, to Donad, every day about everything that he does. But I'm going to be on the ground, a soldier in my community, ensuring that the people who live here in Boston understand how destructive these people are going to be and what the issues are. And the issues have to be fought locally. They cannot be fought I agree with federally. That. Yeah. I agree with that. Thank you, Pascal, for being with us. And you'll be back before the end of the year. Uh, we always enjoy your insight and your analysis. You're listening to Our Common Ground next week. Coming up, Dr. Tommy J. Curry, and we're going to be talking the issues of the day. Um, and I will also, Ron, thank you. I've been talking shit to Democratic Party because Keith Ellison and I got into it a couple of days ago because I wanted to know where is the We Will Always Resist tour coming out of the Democratic National Committee. I'm Janice Graham, and as always, I'll be listening for you. Sorry we didn't get to everybody's calls. Thank you so much for joining us on Our Common Ground tonight, and we are grateful to have had Pascal Robert, an Our Common Ground interlocutor, in discussion about the political landscape in America. You can join him on Facebook at his blog, The Thought Merchant and as he contributes to the Black Agenda Report. Join us next Saturday night with our Common Ground interlocutor and Texas A&M University professor, Dr. Tommy J. Curry. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. We close our broadcast tonight with excerpts from a Counterpunch radio interview between Eric Drapeser, the host, and Dr. Anthony Montero of the Political Science Department at Penn State University. Where does the greatest danger come from, or where did it come from in this election? I think that the greatest danger came from Clinton. I think the demonstrators in the street don't recognize or understand that. I think that the corporate media has not given up on stopping Trump and bringing to power some form of the Clinton Big Tent, whether that will be through Mike Pence, whether that will be through a marginalized, diminished Trump presidency, and thus power 
shifting to the Senate and the House of Representatives and a bipartisan so-called coalition. Uh, you just don't know. But I think, and again, I'll say this, I think the word fascism needs to be taken out of the mouths of most people that are using it because it's only fascism when their side is not winning. It's not fascism when their side wins. I contend that the infrastructure and the institutions of repression that we could identify with fascism have been put in place since the Clinton administration. Uh, the other thing about it is that what is new was the belligerency and the willingness to confront a major power like Russia and China and to suggest, and this is coming from the liberal big tent, full spectrum war against China, Russia, yes. and possibly Iran. I wrote I, I wrote, think you're very aware about all I that. wrote all of that. That's exactly what I wrote. That was that I wrote it uh dozens of times in many articles published mm -hmm. on the subject. Uh I, I wrote exactly that point. So I'm of course in agreement on that. But and this is I guess where we're differing here, I don't believe that just because now it's shifted in this way, that we're going to see some kind of a qualitative shift in not only on that issue, but on a number of issues. Most importantly, and this is the we're we're already well over the time here, but I just want to finish up this conversation. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. that that the infrastructure of the police state is all there. Okay, but we have not yet had that trigger that triggering moment to really move into a full mobilization of the infrastructure of that police state. Now, to some degree, certain communities, particularly black communities in the poorest parts of America that live under what amounts to a military or quasi-military occupation by the police, they have some inkling of what that looks like, but most of this country does not. And the, and the danger that we face now is that we cannot have an either-or approach. I said leading up to this election to oppose both Trump and Clinton and to be prepared, no matter which way this went, to mobilize, to bring them down, no matter who won. And that was my position before. That remains my position now because I see them both as tremendous, tremendous dangers. And I think that now that we are facing it, now that this is reality, despite everything we could say, including challenging the results of the election, the reality is this is the incoming administration, this is the incoming government, and these are the tools that they're being handed by the liberals, by the Democrats. They are being handed those tools that they had in turn been handed by the Bush administration before them. And now, like I said, from bad to worse to rotten. We have to see this trajectory for what it is, and we have to be prepared for one other point, Tony, and this is going to be my last one, and then I want to give you the last word, okay? We have to be prepared for the inevitable, inevitable, and I say this again, inevitable betrayal by this incoming government. They will betray, if not all, then most of the promises that they have made, because that is what they do. That is how governing works in this country. That's what's going to happen. Okay? Say maybe you don't think it will. I am I am certain that that's what's going to happen. Okay? When that happens, who will be scapegoated? Who 
will be blamed. When Trump can't build his wall, when Trump can't deliver on, on you know, ending free trade and neoliberalism and replacing it with something truly terrific, as he likes to say, okay, when that doesn't happen, where is the anger going to go? Where is it going to be channeled? Who is going to be in the crosshairs? These are obviously rhetorical questions because I think it's obvious, mm-hmm. and we do have a parallel. You might not want to talk about the word fascism because – and I agree with you. Most people using it don't really understand what the word really means, but I think I have a fair understanding of what the word means. And here's the issue. Historical parallels we have in Germany – when the Germans lost the war, what, what led to the rise of a true fascist movement? It was the feeling that the people had been stabbed in the back, stabbed in the back and betrayed by certain forces inside of their country. In, in Germany, it was stabbed in the back by the communists, stabbed in the back by the Jews, which in many ways were synonymous in their minds, stabbed in the back by certain elements uh, of the liberal bourgeoisie in the country, stabbed in the back. That led to the rise of the Nazis. That feeling led to the rise of Hitler. Okay. Similarly, in this country, I would never say that Trump is Hitler. I would never say that we are witnessing the rise of, of, of our Hitler. No. What we are witnessing, though, is the preparation for a major, major betrayal, which will translate into a major upsurge of scapegoating and hate. And when that happens, you wait for the next political movement, the next political figure, the next one who will seize on that with all of these conditions, with the police state intact, with these reactionary politicians now in positions of leadership. Okay, that new reality, we need to be be facing it and we need to be prepared for it and we need to be organizing and mobilizing ourselves to defend against those people who will be on the front lines and we know who that is okay <laughs> well uh, you know and and uh and if uh we have what, what you call fascism uh we can thank the liberals because it was it was it was the so-called liberals that uh, that gave us all of the instruments of state repression and the attack upon civil liberties and the neo-McCarthyism, uh, the so-called liberals, the neoliberals, in fact. But I see other possibilities, uh, possibilities of a new resistance, a new unity, uh, a new left, a new left, a new consciousness, a new combativeness uh, that will come out of this uh, moment of crisis. Well, that's and what I'm talking crisis. about. Yes, that's and, exactly what and, I'm promoting. And, yes. And, yes. And, and one thing, even if we want to use the 1930s as the analog, the difference is that uh, you have...